Amen. There is a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, and I know that it is the spirit of the Lord. Uh, we thank God for allowing us to come back to this sacred spot uh, that we have the privilege of worshiping at every Sunday. It's nothing that we've done that we deserve the right to be here. It is only by God's grace and mercy that we sit where we're sitting and that I'm standing where I'm standing. And for that alone, we ought to give God a hand clap of praise. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been on a series called Taste and See. And on last Sunday, we had a, a guest uh, preacher, uh, Jedediah. And he stood in my stead, so I want to thank him for uh, the great sermon he preached. Amen. Give him a hand. Amen. So uh, it's going to be a tough act to follow today. But I want to uh, call your attention uh, to Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Uh, it is on page 854 in your pew Bibles. And I invite you to stand with me as we read the scripture together. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be with the guests of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and save the lost. Amen. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God lasts forever. And for a few moments, I would just like to hang as a title over this text, the etiquette of God's grace, the etiquette of God's grace. In that scholarly journal called Country Living, <laughs> amen, somebody. a columnist by the name of Catherine Newman uh, talks about the term etiquette, and she says that the term is derived from French culture and means little ethics, which is exactly why the practice is more significant now than ever. She goes on to say that etiquette is a whole worldview and system of values. It's how we live in community with other people. 
and is almost synonymous with kindness. Etiquette involves remembering that there are other people in the world with their own needs, feelings, and grief. One writer put it this way from a Christian perspective. He says, etiquette is more than fussy rules laid down by stuffy people. Etiquette is the oil that lubricates society and reduces the friction of interpersonal relationships. Jesus is our model. He came to earth and took on our dress customs and manners in order to lead us to God. As his followers, we should see etiquette as a way to follow in his footsteps. And that is the essence of this passage today. We see the etiquette of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. We've been operating under this theme, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good and happy are those who take refuge in him. This idea of etiquette being coupled with God's grace, it really Im implies what Catherine Newman is saying, little ethics, which means to really do right about people in the details of life. And it also highlights that what happened to Zacchaeus, that when we are exposed to God's grace, that God's grace changes everything. That we, when we really appropriate the grace of God in our lives, it, it has a way of getting into our system and it changes our perspective. We begin to look at life through the lens of God's grace. So in our passage today, we find a, a man by the name of Zacchaeus who is exposed to God's grace. And the big idea of this passage is that the grace of Jesus leads us to a repentant heart and restorative hands. And we see this in the life of Zacchaeus. Text tells us that uh, Jesus, in doing ministry, he entered Jericho and was passing through it. Uh, Jericho was a major hub for trade. Uh, it, it was known for its palm trees. It was a vacation site uh, for many in the first century. And so it was a, a lucrative place. But there we find in Jericho a man by the name of Zacchaeus. And Luke tells us two important things about Zacchaeus, that he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, only in this passage is the term chief tax collector mentioned. Uh, it, 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 it really means that, in the implication here is that, that he was someone who, and for lack, lack of a better word, just allow me to use my, my sanctified imagination, that he was, he was the CFO of 
the chief, the tax collector's convention. Amen, somebody. That he had a lot of other tax collectors under him. But you have to understand this, the culture behind why Luke mentioned this, because tax collectors were normally Jewish, and they were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people. And so they were viewed as traitors. Uh, they were viewed as people who, who were traitors and they could not be trusted by their own people. And so whenever you see tax collectors in the gospels, that they were always coupled with sinners, tax collectors and sinners. And so here we find Zacchaeus being the chief tax collector and the story goes on to say that he was trying to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, because he was too short in stature. In other words, he could not see Jesus. He, that was a major problem for Zacchaeus. Luke tells us that even though Zacchaeus was rich and a tax collector, he had this, this one problem. He was, he was short. He could not see Jesus. Uh, it, the crowd obstructed his view. As if to say, Luke is saying that the real reason that he couldn't get a clear view of Jesus was because he was short in stature. But the thing we do see, there's some lessons we can learn from Zacchaeus. And the first thing we see is that Zacchaeus may have been short in stature, but he was tall in humility. He was tall in humility. It, you see, it takes humility to follow Jesus. Proud people don't really follow Jesus. When we're, when we're short in humility, we tend to be tall in pride. And Zacchaeus is a model of someone who has become humble and what humility does, humility always catches God's attention. I guess that's why Peter and James both say God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Andrew Murray wrote that great book on humility. He, he had this to say about humility. He said, humility is the only soil in which virtue takes root. A lack of humility is the explanation of every defect and failure in humanity. Humility is not so much a virtue along with the others, but it is the root of all virtues because it alone takes the right attitude, the right posture before God and allows him as God to do all. And so when we assume the posture of humility as Zacchaeus did, it, it catches Jesus' attention. And we have to be careful not to be short in humility and tall in pride. So Zac, Zacchaeus was short in stature, but he was tall in humility. It behooves us that we are people of humility because God makes us perpetual recipients of his grace. But not only was Zacchaeus tall in humility, he was tall in faith. 
Look at what it says here as we, the story unfolds. It says he was trying to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. In other words, he didn't let the crowd keep him from seeing Jesus. And when we're short in faith, we have a tendency to be tall in fear. And fear paralyzes us and holds us back. But faith pushes us forward. God did not call us to live a life of fear. He called us to live a life of faith, brothers and sisters. Charles Spurgeon said it best. He says, the fear of God is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases all other fears before it. The fear of God, when we have a healthy reverence for God and a healthy posture toward God in humility, that the fear of God is the death of every other fear. And it's like a mighty lion. It chases all the other fears before it. We, we want to have a healthy fear of God. We want to live a life of faith. After all, that King James translation of, of, the Hebrew, of Hebrews on the, on the description of faith, it says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith gives substance to our lives. When we walk by faith, we show the world, we show people what we are made of that we are made of some God stuff, that God is in us. And if God is in us, then he's more than the whole world is against us. But here's another thing I want us to see in, with Zacchaeus, that the fact that he was tall in faith. You see, throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees and teachers, they were critiquing every move that Jesus made. And they believed that Zacchaeus didn't have a right to be at their table. That is, the table of their father, Abraham. They were more concerned, brothers and sisters, about their ethnic identity than they were about their spiritual identity. Don't allow your ethnic identity to become a form of idolatry. Now, don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. Your ethnicity is important, but not as important as your identity in Christ. And so, so don't, don't allow your blackness, don't allow your whiteness or your Asian identity to keep, you, to keep you from following Jesus wholeheartedly. Don't allow it to be an impediment to your relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing should come between you and Jesus. You and Jesus should be so tight that your blackness don't come between you and Jesus. Your, your whiteness don't come between you, you and Jesus. Your Asian identity doesn't come between you and Jesus because your identity is in Jesus Christ. Amen? You see, brothers and sisters, it, it takes faith to see Jesus for who he really is. The Pharisees didn't, didn't have faith. They had more faith in themselves than they had in the messianic hope. It takes faith to see Jesus for who he really is. It takes faith 
to taste Jesus. We mentioned in earlier sermons that taste is the spark of an appetite, that when we taste something for the very first time, it cultivates an appetite in us and it cultivates a level of intimacy that we want to taste it again. And we see this in Zacchaeus' life. See, Zacchaeus, not only was he tall in faith, but he was tall in repentance as well. He was a repentant man. See, when we're short in repentance, we have a tendency to be tall in sin. We, God has called us to confess our sins, to be repentant. You see, he, he swallowed his ego. He, he didn't give up. He didn't give lip service to Jesus. He backed it up with his hands. He was repentant in his heart, but he was restorative with his hands. And I love to have the story unfold because here Zacchaeus runs and climbs up a sycamore tree. Uh, for a chief tax collector, a rich man, to climb up a sycamore tree means that, means that he, had to, he had to swallow his ego. But it also means that he had a childlike faith. Because when we have a childlike faith, that is according to, according to Jesus, he said, you, you will not make it into the kingdom of heaven unless you have a childlike faith. And so here Zacchaeus is acting like a child. He's running up the sycamore tree just to get a view of Jesus. And the beautiful story about this, brothers and sisters, is that as Zacchaeus was looking to get a clear view of Jesus, Jesus had already gotten a clear view of Zacchaeus. Look at what he says. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus already knew Zacchaeus' name. He knew his name. He didn't have to introduce himself. You know, we've been, I've been teaching this class called The Art of Neighboring, and it the order neighboring, one of the first steps it says that you have to learn is your neighbor's name. In the, in the block that you live in, well, Jesus had a head start on us. He, he, he was all-knowing, so he already knew Zacchaeus' name. But anyway, we find Jesus telling Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, I must stay at your house today. Now, this word must is sprinkled throughout the Gospel of Luke. And it carries with it the idea of the missionary activity of God. That God, through the person of his son Jesus Christ, is seeking to save those who are lost. And so we find in Luke's Gospel, he keeps saying, I must, I must, I must. And it also implies that Jesus' steps were ordered by the Father. Jesus never made a misstep. He never made a wrong turn. Uh, he had an internal compass within him, which he knew who to meet. He had a divine appointment with Zacchaeus. He knew where to go. He went through Jericho just to see Zacchaeus. And, you know, when I think about that, when I think about that, it's no coincidence that you, you're where you are today. Jesus sought you out. He sought you before you sought him. He, he saw you, and he, wherever you were, Jesus had a divine appointment with you. And that's why 
you're here today. Amen? Amen. And so this, this story is so beautiful as it unfolds. We find the, the missionary activity of God, but also we find some haters. It says, all who saw it began to grumble and said he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. So you have a crowd, and rightly so, because he was the chief tax collector. And as a tax collector, and as a chief tax collector, he was getting commission from the tax collectors under him, but he was also taking some off the top. So he was extorting. One, one might say that he was extorting some of the money. But what we find with Zacchaeus, once he is exposed to, to the grace of Jesus Christ, grace changed everything in Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus tasted the grace of God that day. He discovered that day that what Paul discovered, that God's grace is sufficient, that Jesus is never short on grace. He's never short on grace. And neither should we as followers of Jesus be short on grace. Amen? Y'all kind of quiet in here. The 830 crowd was, was I got more amens from them. What's going on with y'all? Amen, somebody. Now, if I'm telling the truth, I, you know, every now and then, it's, it's, it's good to say amen. If you can't say amen, just say ouch. But Zacchaeus tasted the, the grace of God that day. He discovered what Paul discovered, that God's grace is sufficient and that Jesus is never short on grace. That was one of the old mothers at the church that I, used to serve at, and she, whenever I preached on grace, and I think she forgot that she had given it to me several times, but whenever I preached on grace, she would always give me this, this acrostic for grace, that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, grace is free to us, but it cost Christ everything. It costed, cost him his life. Grace is free to us because of what Jesus did on the cross. So we are recipients of God's grace because of Jesus. God took the initiative just as he did with, with Zacchaeus. He took the initiative. He did not wait for Zacchaeus to come to him. He saw Zacchaeus. And in, 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 in many ways, he, he invited himself to Zacchaeus' home. And this is another theme in Luke's gospel is that Jesus is never a guest whenever he shows up at somebody's house. <laughs> He's never a guest. He's always the host. Because after all, everything belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. When we show up at church, we're guests here. He's the host. Amen. The raw materials that we have to build our home, to drive our car, we're the host. He's the, he's the, we, we're the guest. He's the host. Everything that God created belongs to him. 
you're just borrowing it right now because you can't take it with you. Amen, somebody. Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' home, and Jesus again becomes the host. Jesus takes the initiative and extends grace to Zacchaeus. He had a divine appointment with him. He didn't listen to the collective voice of the crowd, gossiping and murmuring of the crowd, but Jesus received his cues from heaven. The voice of the Father was louder than the voice of the crowd. No doubt, when Jesus got to Zacchaeus' home, they reclined at a table and they enjoyed table fellowship together. And he experienced the sweetness of Jesus Christ. Now, when you read between the lines of this, of this pericope of scripture, the implication is Jesus spent the night at Zacchaeus' home. So he had Jesus all to himself. He must have had a lot of questions. I, I, I wonder why, as I think about Jesus, uh, why did he spend the night with Zacchaeus? I can only imagine Zacchaeus growing up, always felt like an outsider. Uh, I can only imagine that he was lonely. I, I can only imagine that Zacchaeus uh, needed that time with Jesus to, for Jesus to affirm him and for Jesus to forgive him. You see, Jesus knows exactly what you need and when you need it and how you need it. And Jesus doesn't always treat all of us the same way, but he treats all of us as if, as if we are precious in his sight. And so Jesus spends the night with Zacchaeus and he pours into him. And through that time together, Zacchaeus becomes an insider of God's grace. Through that time together, you see, after he met, before he met him, he was an outsider. But after he met him, he was an insider. Before uh, he met him, he was lonely. But now Jesus is his company keeper. And he becomes an insider of God's grace. He began to discover that truly, truly indeed, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, sometimes I, when I think about us as Christians, you know, the way we sometimes behave as Christians leaves a bad taste in the mouth of the world. Let me say that again. The way we sometimes behave as Christians leaves a bad taste in the mouth of the world. In other words, people are saying, I, I don't want to know that Jesus you're talking about because your, your behavior speaks so loudly, I can't even see Jesus in you. We have to be careful and we, we have to understand that we are agents of God's grace. We are recipients of God's grace. We are trophies of God's grace. I guess that's why Paul said in Philippians 4, 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I love that expression Paul uses. He says, let your conversation always, not sometimes, 
but always be full of grace. In other words, Paul says, before any word comes out your, mind, your mouth, grace should be at the forefront of your mind. Before any words, before you utter anything to anybody, grace should be at the forefront of your mind. Grace should govern your tongue. But then he has a caveat to it. He says, season with a little salt. Season with a little salt. What, what Paul is implying here is what one of my mentors used to say, God, God wants us to be tough-minded but tender-hearted. Have a tough mind, but be tender-hearted. Be wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. And this is the implication of what Paul is saying. I, I want you to be firm. I want you to be tough-minded, but I want your conversations to be always full of grace and seasoned with salt. This is what we see in the life of Jesus Christ. He, he's always full of grace, but he, he confronts and he deals with conflict in a graceful way. He deals with people in a graceful way. And that's the way we should be as we follow Jesus Christ. You know, as I thought about this, this, this text, and no doubt Jesus experienced table fellowship with Zacchaeus, and it, and it was at that table fellowship that he affirmed Zacchaeus. One of my favorite writers, Todd Bolsinger, wrote a book called It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian. And he utters these words. I want you to hear, hear these words. He says, today, like most days, people will gather around tables. Coffee tables, drawing tables, breakfast and dinner tables, boardroom tables, picnic tables, school tables. Families will discuss problems, joys, and the details of the day. Deals will be made and divorce settlements will be finalized. Paper, papers will be signed and friendships will be renewed. Milk will be spilt and puzzles will be built. Homework will be done and bills will be left unpaid. The table, maybe more than any other item, is universal, necessary, and ordinary. It is around tables that life is lived and it is at tables that perhaps unexpectedly God can be found. Do you hear what Todd Bosinger is saying? He said it, it, it's perhaps at tables, that, that simple mundane place at tables that perhaps Unexpectedly, God can be found. And brothers and sisters, let your kitchen table, let the table in your office, let the lunch table, let whatever tables you have around you, let your picnic table, let whatever table you have, let that table point to this table. Those tables are a microcosm of the table for which Jesus died that all of us are welcome, all of us are included at this table. But let the table, your kitchen table, be a place to point people to this table. 
Let the table in the lunchroom be a place to point people to this table. Let the table in your office be a place to point people to the table for which Jesus died and the table for which Jesus rose. Uh, let us point people to the big table. Can I get a witness in here? Because it's for this table that he died and rose again and declared that all power is in his hands, that all power. You know, several years ago, it was on a date night, my wife and I were in Kirkland at a restaurant and it was just a regular, regular evening and uh, we were sitting at a, at a table in the restaurant enjoying one another's company and lo and behold, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman who seemed to be quite intoxicated that night. Amen, somebody. But she came to our table and she said, can I sit with you? And before we could say no, she had already sat down. <laughs> and as she sat there and began to share with us, then that classic question came up, what kind of work do you do? My wife laughed and I laughed and my wife, I think she spoke first. She said, well, my husband is a pastor. And she looks up to heaven as if she's talking to God. And she says, God, are you messing with me? <laughs> and indeed, God was messing with her. She began to share her story with us that she had grown up in the church. She was in a Bible-believing family, and she was raised as a Christian. But in her words, she had fallen from grace, and she didn't think that God could ever bring her back. And we began to encourage her. We began to tell her that no one is beyond the scope of God's grace, that God's grace is sufficient. God never throws in the towel on you. God still, you are still a part of God's family. And we just began to encourage her, and she began to weep. And then we prayed with her. And she got up and we never saw her again. But from time to time, I think about her and I said, Lord, I don't know where she is, but I, I'm praying that because of the reason she sat at our table, that you drew her back to yourself. Let that be said in our own circles of influence that somebody sat at your table uninvited, but then you begin to point them to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this table. We thank you, Lord, for every table that we have the privilege of sitting at throughout the week, whether it's our kitchen table, whether it's a lunch room table. Wherever we find ourselves, Lord, may those tables serve as a microcosm of this table, the table for which we celebrate the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would touch somebody under the sound of my voice, whether they're on the radio or online or in this room, dear God, that you are God of second chances, that no one is beyond the scope of your grace, dear God, that you are never short on grace. 
just like Zacchaeus, Lord, that we too are sons and daughters of Abraham in a spiritual sense. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would draw some man, woman, boy, or girl to yourself and let them know that you are there, that you are not silent. And, Lord, we give you the glory, we give you the praises. In the matchless, mighty, and marvelous name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.